This is an ABC podcast. They're cooking up a plan in Scotland, a project to rebuild the internet. The SAFE network is a decentralised data and communications network. It will replace the data centres and servers that manage all of our data with the spare computing resources of all of its users who can access this network free of charge. The network will give them privacy and security that is not possible on the existing internet. It's ambitious and it's enormously complicated, but can it succeed? The SAFE Network's Nick Lambert will join us a little later. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Also today, sci-fi writer and technology analyst Corey Doctorow on how well-intentioned but poorly designed regulation could actually strengthen rather than weaken the power of today's tech giants. Welcome to Future Tense. Looking beyond the present, signposting the future. Now, speaking of giants, as an entertainment platform, they don't come much bigger than Netflix. For many of us, it's become the default option for television viewing, and that's given it enormous cultural as well as economic value. It's also one of those strange Silicon Valley firms that's managed to dominate globally while making very little profit. We did a whole show on that new form of capitalism just a few months back, if you're interested. In one sense, the problem with Netflix is that it's been too successful for its own good. And many are now predicting that its days of dominance are numbered. Stephen McBride, Chief Analyst with Risk Hedge. Yeah, so I mean, Netflix has really captured the imagination of not only the American public, but everyone around the world. So a decade or more ago, you had to subscribe to cable to watch your favourite shows or whatever. And Netflix came along and through streaming over the internet, it really blew up that distribution. So it completely cut out the middleman and it went direct to the consumer. And that's really where direct to consumer started. And for investors, Netflix has been an absolute juggernaut. So over the past 10 years, it soared roughly 8,500%. So it's, I think it's outperformed Amazon by even like three times over the past decade. Of course, the company still does not make a lot of money, but it's been hugely successful in its growth. It now has 151 million paying subscribers around the world. Um, when you think it collects a fee from each one of those every single month, it's an incredible financial benefit. So it's not overstating it to say that Netflix really changed the way most of us watch TV and movies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you think about, as you mentioned in the opening, the cultural phenomenon of Netflix. I mean, 35 million Americans have dropped cable in the last decade. And last year, half of all Americans aged between 22 and 45 didn't watch a second of cable TV. As regards streaming content over the internet, it's completely changed how we consume content forever. And, and that's really, Netflix has sown the seeds of its own downfall in many ways, but not before enjoying an incredible two decades of success. Now, sowing the seeds of its own downfall, you believe the streaming giant's days are now numbered. Netflix's worst nightmare coming true is how you put it. Just explain what the problem is. Yeah, so in a world where the internet has enabled and streaming services has enabled us to watch what we want, when we want, great content is really what matters. So Netflix's success, the, the, at the seed of its success, 
was the fact that it could stream content over the internet. And for many years, it was the only company doing this, right? So no cable company, no content provider dared roam into Netflix's territory. And in fact, they were more than happy to sell their best content and watch while Netflix cannibalized their business. But all these, uh, the cable companies and content creators like Disney are waking up to the fact that Netflix has completely changed the game as regards how we consume content. And they, too, need to go to direct to consumer. And Disney is just about to launch its own streaming service. But they're not the only big creators pulling away from Netflix, are they? Yeah, so NBC is also going to launch their own streaming service and AT&T's HBO, along with a, a litany of other players. So you see uh, Hulu, which is is now fully owned by Disney. They are the other major streaming service in America. So what you sort of see is, as you said, it's like a back to the future type of thing where all these content creators and cable companies are realizing, hey, we need to do this. And um, suddenly Netflix is not the only streaming service in town. So that centralisation trend that occurred with the distribution of TV and movies, that's now about to reverse. Is that what you're predicting? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the golden era of having everything under one umbrella is probably over. First of all, I think you're going to see dozens of streaming services launch over the next five years. And then in the uh, the five years following that, you're probably going to see a lot of them close. The real key to streaming is that you need a flywheel of content. You need new movies, new series updates every single week, every single month, because that's what keeps people coming back. So only the ones with the strongest flywheel of content, only the ones that can release hit movie after hit movie are really the ones that are going to be successful in this game. So if Netflix does decline, as you and others are predicting, and we see many new streaming rivals, what will be the implications in the future for consumers? I think the implications are going to be that you see people gravitate towards the best content. In my opinion, Disney has the best lineup in this sense. You know, when most of your listeners think of Disney, they think of the Mickey Mouses and the Donald Ducks and and that type of thing. But Disney is launching the Disney Plus app, which for want of a better word, is going to have the kids content and things like Marvel and all those. And then they also own, as I said, Hulu, which looks after the grown up content. So they have The Handmaid's Tale and the type of dramas that you see on Netflix. So I think the implications for all of us is that we're going to have to choose one or two great streaming services. And I think the logical choice would be, hey, let's go with the, the ones that have the best content. Because as I said, that's really what attracts people these days. Now, this change has been mooted for um, at least the last year. What has Netflix been doing to prepare for the loss of, of some of this enormously popular content? So Netflix has been pumping money into making original content. So in 2017, it spent about $8 billion on original content. Last year was 12. This year is going to be over 15. So when you go into Netflix now, you I'm sure many of your uh, listeners will say Netflix original, you know, the series, the movies. So they've really been pumping more money than any other American content creator into their original content. But it has struggled to make money, hasn't it? So by going further into debt, doesn't that just exacerbate its problems long term? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, they do not make enough money. So they actually spend more than they take in through subscriptions. So they've been taking on huge sums of debt. So I think the debt has risen from about 3 billion to 10 billion in the last two years. That does not become a problem yet. 
because interest rates are still low and, you know, investors are still willing to give Netflix plenty of capital. What I think competition means for Netflix and what I think the next one or two years holds is that you're going to see growth rates dramatically decline. And you actually saw that in the latest quarter. The results were released last week. So they actually shed 126 million American subscribers, which was the first time ever in the streaming era of Netflix that they lost American subscribers. And the international subscriber count, which is the real engine for Netflix's growth, came in uh, over 2 million underestimates. And I think the interesting part of this is that the CEO, Reed Hastings, mentioned in his investor letter, the reason behind the subscriber growth miss was the content slate in the second quarter of 2019 was light. In other words, they did not produce many shows or movies that people wanted to watch. Going forward, they're going to have to produce great shows and great movies to attract people. And the argument keeps going. The problem with that is it has not proved, even with $30 billion and three years under its belt of spending on content, it has not proved that it can make hit show after hit show after hit show. And even if it keeps throwing money at the problem, eventually the debt does become an issue. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in the Netflix story and a lot of things to keep your eye on, but we keep going back to the content. Stephen McBride, Chief Analyst with Risk Hedge, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anthony. And you're listening to Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National. A few weeks ago, we took a look at the introduction of the EU's new copyright directive. Not an earth-shatteringly exciting topic, to be certain, but an important one nevertheless. It's just that type of legislation designed to rein in the power of the big US tech giants that worries well-known sci-fi writer and technology analyst Corey Doctorow. Good intentions are one thing, says Doctorow, but the new regulation is already showing signs of backfiring. Encouraging competition, he says, is a far more effective way to go. Well, I think that we are at a crossroads where we are going to decide whether we're going to make the big tech companies clean up their act and behave in a way that is suitable to someone who's in charge of the personal daily lives of two billion people in ways that are intimate and far-reaching, or whether we're going to say that it's actually impossible for anyone to do an adequate job of that, let alone a firm whose DNA is just filled with you know, the worst corporate excesses and lying and cheating and every kind of bad act. And we say instead that we are going to do what we can to weaken their grip on our lives, that we get to choose whether we're going to try and fix big tech or fix the internet, but we can't do both. You don't believe, though, do you, that the sort of regulation we've seen in recent years, particularly the general data protection regulation in the European Union, that that's going the right in the right direction? That's not the type of legislation that you think will be effective? Oh, I actually reckon GDPR does lots of good things. My concern with it is that the compliance costs are extremely high. And so what that has led to in just a year is the near total collapse of European ad brokerages in favor of the big five American tech firms. And this is precisely the kind of thing that we ought to worry about, that these firms, you know, on the one hand would prefer to not have to pay to comply with privacy rules and have a free for all. But, you know, a not too distant second preference is to have a set of privacy rules that they and they alone can comply with and that every small competitor who might do to Google what Google did to Yahoo or might do to Facebook what Facebook did to MySpace is priced out of the market at the stroke of a pen. 
And then all they have to do is worry about each other. And and we know what that looks like. It looks like, say, the oil market or any other big concentrated sector where effectively they divide up the world and maybe they, they compete a little on the margins. But mostly, you know, all the people who are in the senior ranks of those firms used to work for another firm. I mean, the way you rise up in the ranks is to get poached by one of the other big firms. And then you move back and forth. And effectively, they just become a, a single unified entity that lobbies together very well. So they cement their dominance by being the only ones who can who can afford to comply with the new regulations is that correct i mean what what are we talking about when we're talking about compliance costs in that regard that's right it's the cost of compliance and then you know the the other corollary of this is that when you invest a firm with state like duties you implicitly say that you will never break it up into pieces too small to perform those duties. When America had just the one phone company, when it was all run by AT&T, although it wasn't a state agency, it wasn't like Bell Canada or you know Deutsche Telekom, Nevertheless, they were invested with many state-like rules. And in some ways, this was the worst of all rules. So they weren't subject to direct democratic control, but they were vital to things like uh, emergency response, policing, public safety, and so on. And whenever anyone would come along and say, well, look at how abusive and terrible our giant privatized phone company is, we'd best split them into smaller pieces so they'll have to compete and and shape up and and clean up their acts. They would say, well, how do you expect us to perform these vital state-like duties if we are not so large that we rival the state itself in power. And this is why it took until 1982 to break AT&T up. And unfortunately, that was the last hurrah of proper antitrust enforcement in America. And shortly thereafter, American politicians as a body switched to a, a very dangerous interpretation of antitrust that says that monopolies aren't a problem provided they're not raising costs on consumers in the short term. What I will say is that much of what big tech has done to get big is not mystical network effects or the incredible persuasive power of machine learning driven algorithms. It's just stuff that used to be illegal, right? You look at Google, Google's a company that only ever invented two significant products, a very good search engine and a pretty good clone of Hotmail. And everything else Google has done, they've done by buying a nascent competitor. That's activity that would have been prohibited under historic contours of, of anti-monopoly and antitrust laws. And really, if you have a bunch of firms in an industry that have gotten big by doing things that used to be illegal, and they only got big once we stopped making them illegal, I think we could do worse than try making those activities illegal again and see what happens. You talk about the need for adversarial interoperability to come much more to the fore. Could I get you to explain that concept to us and why that could be useful in terms of bringing more competition into the tech sector in the future. You know, this is part of the wider story of industry concentration. Once an industry is concentrated, they make more profits, right? They have these monopoly rents. They can use that for lobbying. And they they also are better at singing from the same page, right? When all of the tech leaders in America can fit around a table with Donald Trump for a photo op in Trump Tower after he gets elected, they can all fit around a table of comparable size later on and cut deals with each other about how they're all going to conduct themselves. So prior to the concentration in the tech industry, what we call adversarial interest interoperability was very common. You would have a firm that would make a product and they would try to control the entire ecosystem. You know, you would have IBM making the PC and then you would have little companies. There was a company called Phoenix Computing that cloned the uh, proprietary IBM chip, the ROM chip that made an IBM PC and IBM PC. And then they sold that to IBM's competitors. And that's how we got the IBM PC compatible market, which kept the market competitive. Remember, IBM, the year after 
they launched their PC, they settled their 13-year-long battle with the Department of Justice over monopoly tactics in the mainframe market. This was not a firm that willingly countenanced competition. And yet, because they weren't able to avail themselves of legal tools to shut down a competitor that cloned a key component that made an interoperable, compatible component, they had to contend with this competitive marketplace that disciplined them, that made them behave themselves, that made them price their wares well, that made them continue to innovate, and that fenced them off from the kinds of bad activities we associate with monopolists. So how do you encourage that kind of interoperability? Because one would assume that the big tech companies are going to fight against that sort of thing. Oh, no, they will now. I mean, remember, every pirate wants to be an admiral, right? There were four square for adversarial interoperability when it was, for example, Google pretending to be a web user logging into every website in the world and making a copy of every page it had and then making an index and turning that into a search engine. Google was fine with adversarial interoperability when that was going on. But lest you try and go and grab every page on Google and every view on Google or make a tool that lets people merge Google with a rival service, you'll find very quickly that, you know, do as I say, not as I do is the rule of Silicon Valley. Likewise, you know, Facebook once made a tool that let its users log into MySpace automatically, grab their waiting MySpace messages and import them into Facebook. So you didn't have to make a choice between abandoning your MySpace friends and using the superior Facebook service. You could talk to your MySpace friends from Facebook. But when a competitor tried to do that to Facebook, a company called Power Ventures, Facebook paid a a hell of a lot of money to hire a very good legal team to argue that this Ronald Reagan era tech law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act actually prohibited that activity. And now that they had done it successfully to emerge as the new dominant player, no one else should be able to do it to them. We have this thicket of laws and interpretations of existing laws that have sprung into existence as the industry has become more concentrated that allows it to convert its commercial preferences into legal obligations to basically create felony contempt of business model. So, you know, for example, in in 1998, America adopted the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which later came to Australia through the U.S.-Australia Free Trade Agreement. And this is a law that, among other things, bans removing a copyright lock for any purpose, including the purpose of making an interoperable product. So, you know, if you have a copyright lock that stops you from replacing the screen on an iPhone or servicing a tractor, that activity of, of bypassing the copyright lock, even though no copyright infringement is taking place, is prohibited. And in the U.S., trafficking in a, in a device to accomplish this end is punishable by a, a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. So you have companies like Apple that made their bread and butter by making interoperable products products that now use that to ensure that they're the only firm in the world that can make a store for iPhone owners to buy software from. And they get to squeeze the people who make the software, and they get to squeeze the people who buy the software, and they get to sit in the middle and say, you know, when we did it, it was the legitimate progress of technology, but when you do it to us, it's piracy. So genuinely promoting interoperability would be a a way in which regulation could simply address the monopolistic nature of today's technology and likely to be popular with members of the public. But are regulators likely to go down that path in the future? I mean, do you see any sign that that anybody is is looking in that direction? Well, as you say, there is a a vast gap between what's popular with the public and what lawmakers feel enabled to do, although I like to think that that's changing a little bit. In the US, we've had some shifts in our political landscape towards more popular policies and away from policies that are only popular with major campaign donors. 
which is, I think, good news. You know, for example, network neutrality is a policy that's favored by 87% of Americans, but not something that Congress seems enabled to enact. I definitely hear what you're saying. Nevertheless, it seems to me that it's indefensible to say that the law should prohibit you from doing things that companies disfavor rather than things that legislatures have prohibited, right? If the legislature wanted to make it illegal to jailbreak your iPhone, they should have passed the No Jailbreaking Your iPhone Act of 1998, not the Copyright Protection Act of 1998. And it's actually pretty straightforward to distinguish between the two activities. All you need to do is say, it shall be a defense against this law that you have not infringed copyright in the process of bypassing the copyright lock. In other words, if you don't do anything that the legislature has prohibited, then the fact that you had to go around some company's defense system in order to do something is of no consequence. You know, we could create what amounted to uh, an interoperator's defense that said that provided you were allowing one person to interoperate with another person's service in a way that didn't break the law, so, you know, not to allow Cambridge Analytica to steal our data from Facebook, but to allow a Facebook user to use a rival service without abandoning all their friends on Facebook, provided you're not breaking the law, then you are absolutely defended from claims under patent and copyright and terms of service violations and tortious interference and other doctrines that stand in the way of the normal historic means by which one firm that entered the market would compete with the firm that was already there. Corey Doctorow, thank you very much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The internet's changing, and there is a wave of new technologies entering the market, but most fail to provide the levels of privacy and security we should expect. The current internet relies on centralized servers owned by a few large and powerful organizations to host your data. These central points act as honeypots for hackers and advertisers trying to monetize your data. Decentralization offers a solution to this problem. For more than 10 years now, a group of developers in Scotland have been hard at work rethinking the internet. How to make it not just less vulnerable to hacking, but also less reliant on surveillance capitalism to drive the cogs. The SAFE network is their working alternative vision, and it's currently being tested and assessed. Nick Lambert is the Chief Operating Officer for the network's parent company, MadeSafe. Our belief is that the existing internet, which ultimately came out of a US military project called ARPANET back in the 70s, like many things, has just grown arms and legs and has been repurposed over time to suit its current day use. But it wasn't ever originally designed for that use case to have millions of people connecting, uploading content, downloading content. And our approach is that we need to start again and we need to redesign this network for the modern age. What it does, it does use the existing cables and routers and switches and all the hardware that the existing internet provides, and the IP layer as well. And then it replaces the layers above that, the data centers and servers that currently host the majority of our data. And what we're looking to do is replace that layer above with the spare computing resources, the hard drive space, processors and bandwidth that we all have in our computers at home. So if you consider that something like one billion computers connected to the Internet and make an assumption that we all have you know, probably at least 50 gig that we're not using on our storage, it's that resource that we are, our software enables to be connected together to form this new network or Internet, as we call it, that will replace 
the existing web services that are currently provided by the, the data centers that I mentioned before. So just so I'm clear on this, if I was using the SAFE network, my data wouldn't be stored in one central place as it, as it currently is with the internet. It would be broken up and then scattered across computers all across the world. Yeah, that's exactly how it would work. It's counterintuitive at times because sometimes you think your data would be more secure within a like a garden-walled data center controlled environment. But often that's where adversaries and hackers know where to go to get access to your data. And the practices sometimes used by these companies are not what we hope it would be because sometimes that data is held as plain text and unencrypted. And so what we are looking to do or are doing is hosting data across lots of other computers on the internet that are the other users of the network. But in order to do so, obviously, we need to make sure it's highly encrypted and much more difficult for attackers to uh, locate and uh, decrypt. Now, that distributive model, if you like, sounds a lot like blockchain. But this we're not talking about blockchain here, are we? We're not. And we actually predate Bitcoin as well. But the decentralized model has some upsides over centralized models. Depending on the implementation, it's, it can be certainly much more efficient and we believe it can be much more secure. But it's quite different to blockchain. Uh, the blockchain model is very, very good for things like uh, distributed public ledgers, which you see it used in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but is not well suited, we don't think, to hosting a kind of new internet because blockchains tend not to be that scalable with their current implementations and they are typically unencrypted so they're not uh, necessarily providing you security because everything is in plain text and there's a number a number of other technical reasons that it doesn't suit our use case so so we've gone for a, a distributed model but one that's different from blockchain. And with the the safe network model, can you uh, access information that's already stored on the internet or does the safe network contain a separate pool of websites and information? In a sense, do you have to rebuild platforms again? It's a separate pool. The safe network has its own browser, currently called the safe browser because we're very creative with names. And that's currently set up to only access data that's on the safe network. And you're right that the safe network is a different network entirely. You could import data from the existing internet onto it, but it is a separate network to answer your question. And you could repurpose, like we've listened to the people that are using the network at present. And they've told us that they don't really want to be able to access the existing internet, which we call the clear net, just because it's insecure. You could access potentially those clear net sites with our safe browser. But at the moment, we've just you know switched that functionality off. But you're right to answer your question. It's a separate network. So in summary, the safe network has been created as an alternative internet infrastructure. The railway lines, if you like, for a new version of the internet one built on decentralised data storage. MadeSafe has been testing a version of the system since 2016, and Nick Lambert concedes it's still a work in progress. In the future, the network could be used by people and organisations who want the connectivity of the current internet without the downsides of data misuse and ubiquitous surveillance. In that sense, it's easy to see the SAFE network becoming a kind of secondary internet for specific groups and functions. But the fact that any existing sites and social networks need to be created anew on the SAFE network is likely to limit its growth as a significant competitor to the current internet model. For Nick Lambert, though, providing a choice is what's paramount.
sometimes I wonder that not everyone does seem to want privacy. Sometimes there's governments that, that want to take it away. And I think there's a, a dangerous attitude sometimes that exists in society that if you're not doing anything wrong, then why should you care what people are looking at what you're doing online? And for me, that's a quite a dangerous attitude to have because we're all a little bit different depending on who we're with. So if you're with your mates or you're with your wife or something like that, you're a little bit different as a person. Things can be taken out of context. And I think if you have a society where every single move that you make is watched, I think that becomes quite dangerous. I think people behave differently and not often in a particularly good way. I know that books uh, like 1984 portray that in a very bleak way. Um, but I think there's aspects of that that are that are true. And I, if I look at, like I've got two young kids and if I look at how they are in social media, they almost need to assume now that everything that they do online is there forever. I think that's a very detrimental thing to their growth and I think also to society as well. So that's a driving force for me at least is to try and give people an alternative to what currently exists because I think what exists is and not sufficient for our, our modern day needs. Nick Lambert from Made Safe. If you're interested in finding out more about their Safe Network initiative, there's a link on the Future Tense website. Thanks to Karen Savanovitz, my co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.